If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'll just briefly remind you about what we already learned this morning, hopefully. Hopefully you haven't forgotten it. Uh, James 1.19 has three commands, right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So the, the slow to anger part is in verse 20 of chapter James, James chapter 1. The be quick to listen is what Pastor Brent talked this morning. And hopefully we haven't been quick to forget, right? So hopefully we've been quick to remember uh, that part. And tonight we're going to cover the be slow to speak. So verses 26 and 27 are uh, James's uh, conclusion to his three commands, and he's going to cover the command, be slow to speak. So in James 1, 26 to 27, James addresses this command by affirming that those who cannot bridle their tongue are actually deceived, and their religiousness is useless. And James will then, not to leave the chapter on a negative note, he's then going to give the positive side of what true religion is. So if he's going to condemn uh, religion, he's also going to give the positive view of what pure religion is. So those, those are our two points tonight, really simple. We have two points, worthless religion and pure religion. So really simple. So hopefully we can remember this uh, and make it through two verses in the next half hour. I think we can do it. Um, but before we do, let's uh, go in prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Fathers, we approach your word tonight. We're thankful that we have your word. And we want to thank you for giving us your word. And as we look at a really simple word tonight, um, it is very difficult to live out. And so we would ask for grace uh, to be doers of the word tonight. We're going to hear your word tonight, and we want to be doers of it. So give us grace to repent if there are ways that we need to repent of sin. Give us grace to receive your word with humility and give us wisdom and boldness to walk in your word this week. We ask you to do these things for your glory, that your people may be like you and that you may receive praise as we do your works in the world. So we ask for wisdom tonight, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, James 1. I'll read the two verses, 26 and 27, and then we'll jump right in. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Two very short verses. So let's, let's look first at worthless religion. Now the first thing that struck me as I read this text was how many times the word religion and religious happened in two verses. It happens three times. And so it struck me, it'd probably be important to figure out what James means when he says religious and religion. That'll be helpful to understand this text. And uh, it, it's interesting because these words don't happen very often in the New Testament. You would think they would, right? But this adjective, religious, is the only occurrence in the New Testament. And the word religion only happens four times in the New Testament, and two of them are here. So it's a very rare word. And when I was trying to figure out what it means, uh, one commentator, Doug Moo, helps us uh, he notes that these words are very rare uh, because they're very general in meaning. Just like most people refrain from using them today because they can mean almost anything. They usually refer in meaning to worship in general and especially often to the outward practice of ceremonies in honor 
of a god. And Moo goes on the comment. He says, quote, perhaps James deliberately chooses such a broad term in order to sharpen his point. Anyone who has a claim to genuine religious experience must submit those claims to these tests. And it's really helpful. So if any man claims to be religious, if you claim to be religious at all, this test has to apply to you. So what's the test? If anyone thinks he is religious, but he does not bridle his tongue, what in the world does it mean to not bridle your tongue? Well, the, the metaphor is perhaps new. James is going to go on and use it in chapter 3 and talk about the tongue and the world of iniquity it is. It's set on fire of hell. But the idea of controlling your speech is nothing new to James. Psalm thirty-four, thirteen says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. I mean, we could go on and on and on tonight listing countless proverbs about controlling your words. It's better to keep your mouth shut and people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and confirm it, right? James 3, 5, and 6 is going to go on and describe the tongue and how important it is to control our words. So I think that's one concept, but I think in the context of James, not bridling your tongue specifically is referring to teachers who make their hearers stumble by what they teach. That's why he's going to go on and say, not many of you should be teachers, because you're going to fall under greater judgment. But in the larger context of the New Testament, we could broaden that to say when your tongue is unbridled, you could be gossiping, slandering, participating in unedifying speech. There are a list of things that uh, unedifying speech could include and is uh, a symbol that your tongue is unbridled. Now, why, why would James pick the tongue as his chief point of whether religion is worthless or not? Well, I think Jesus helps us in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. He said, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they can defile a person. James's point here is it's not just what you say, it's where your words are coming from. So, if a person thinks he's religious, but his tongue, which is the evidence of his heart, is unbridled, his religion isn't doing anything at all. It's worthless. Now, what's interesting to me about this phrase, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. It's interesting. I, I expected, when I read it, I kind of misread it the first time I started to study it, because I would expect an unbridled tongue to result in someone being deceived, right? So you'd think if someone's tongue is unbridled, then then his heart will be deceived. But James portrays these two things happening at the same time, that when your tongue is unbridled, your heart is deceived. Now, that brings a seriousness to this test. There should be no tolerance of your tongue being unbridled because at the same time, your heart will be deceived, and we don't want our hearts to be deceived. And part of his point is that uh, an unbridled tongue can deceive even the tongue's owner. Right? And why is that? Because most of the time deception happens through words. So if you're able to say something, you're probably believing it. And so your heart will be deceived. This is a very ser serious situation. And his, com his condemnation is severe. Your religion is worthless. Do you feel the weight of that? Like, 
James can make that call based on someone's use of their tongue. Your religion is worthless. Sometimes this word is translated vain. It's often used to refer to idolatry. Like, if your tongue is unbridled, your religion is useless. It's as good as idolatry. It's worthless. So as we consider verse 26, like, immediately, right out of the gate, and we're going to have lots of application tonight because it's a very practical text, we have to ask ourselves, is your tongue unbridled? Does your tongue run wild? Is your tongue a good indication or a bad indication of your heart condition? If we can gossip with the best of them, if we have no problem tearing down a fellow believer behind their back, those, those are a few indications that our tongue might just be unbridled. If we have no problem sinning with our tongue, our religion is worthless. That is a weighty, weighty warning. So let this text examine your heart and your tongue tonight. If your tongue is unbridled, your religion is worthless. Now, not to leave on that negative note, he then helps us by defining what pure religion is. So if your religion's worthless, this is what you should aim for. Verse 27, look at it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, it's important before we really jump into this verse that we realize that James is not defining Christianity in totality. John Calvin helps us here by saying, James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. So this is not a comprehensive definition of Christianity, right? There's a lot missing from this definition, like prayer and singing and preaching and gathering and communion. and ba- I mean, there's a lot of things missing that we would say are very important to Christianity. So he's not defining all of Christianity. But what he is saying is that if you have these two things or one of these two things missing, you don't have Christianity. So these two things are really important. That's why he lists them uh, as, as what is pure and undefiled religion. So we're going to look at these two pieces. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In order to help us kind of think through this, these are two very, very, very practical commands. So we're going to look at the commands. We're going to ask some questions of them. We're going to then formulate the command down to an implication And out of that implication, there's going to come a lot of application. And regardless of whether all the applications apply to you or not, the implication will, because it's Scripture. So you can't get out from the implication of Scripture. Okay, so we're going to list the implication, and then I'm going to give some things that I think could be helpful for us to think through how we could actually live out Scripture. So let's start by looking at the visiting orphans and widows. And the first question I had is, why in the world should we do this? Right? Like, why should we visit orphans and widows in their affliction? I think James answers it in the text. Look at verse 27 with me. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. I think the reason that we should care about orphans and widows is it's because who God is. So first, God has always been concerned with the well-being of orphans and widows and strangers. The Old Testament is filled with commands for Israel to take care of these groups of people. In fact, when the prophets condemn Israel, one of their most common, consistent refrains from God is that they have stopped taking care of the oppressed, and that is angering God. 
God is described in the Old Testament as the father to the fatherless and the protector of the oppressed and the widows. So we should care about the orphans and widows because it's who God is. I think another piece is it's because it's who God is to us now. <laughs> like, pure religion before God, the Father is this. God is our Father now if we believe the gospel, right? Think about this. God has made a way for those who were once alienated, those who were sinners, to be reconciled back to himself through the work of Christ. So when someone believes the gospel, they're immediately adopted by God as his child. Stop and think about it for a second. We often just gloss over those truths, like we've heard them so often. But think about that. The reality that God would adopt those who once hated him is incredible. God lavishes kindness and grace on his children. And he doesn't do this because of who we are or what we've done. He actually does it in spite of our sin. So there's another layer for us in this room who have experienced this gospel of adoption, this gospel of reconciliation, those who have God as our Father. This command makes total sense. To visit the orphans and widows as God's children, it's the logical conclusion because of what the Father has done for us. To claim God as our Father and refuse to help those who are oppressed and fatherless is to misunderstand the gospel. Something's wrong with our understanding if we are okay with that. So why should we visit the orphans and the widows? It's who God is. It's what he does. And in Christ, we are his children now. We've been adopted. Now the next question I have is, why orphans and widows? Like, why should we visit orphans and widows? I think it's because they are the helpless, the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the alienated social outcasts of James's time, right? In the Old Testament, widows and orphans were the most vulnerable of society. They could not own land. They had no provider. Their existence was one of hard survival. They were completely helpless. In James 2, he will go on to give an example of how believers were discriminating against poor among them, right? So this is a problem, right? back in the Old Testament, but not much has changed today. We think about groups of people who are alienated, who are helpless, who are vulnerable, who are social outcasts. Our group is much bigger than just orphans and widows. So there's, there's a lot of people, and we should help them because they're helpless. We should help them because they're vulnerable. They're oppressed. Now, what does it mean to visit these people? That's an interesting word, right? Pure religion is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. The word visit has the meaning of, you know, to care for, to help, to look after someone. It's not just a one-time visit, like check off the sheet. This is, this is holistic care. I mean, this, this would include physical needs, emotional needs, financial needs, spiritual needs. Everything is included in visiting orphans and widows. It's not just uh, one of those things. It's everything. We need to be caring for these people. So the implication from the first part of verse 27 is that Christians must care for the oppressed, alienated, and socially outcast. Do you see that? They must do it. It's part of being religious. If you're going to claim to be a Christian and have pure religion before God the Father, you must do this. So how do we do that? These are some applicational thoughts. I, I broke them down corporately and individually. 
just to kind of give us some helpful ways of thinking about it. We at Colonial, as a church, we should be thankful that our church, that our pastors and our deacons have, um, have, have picked out several organizations and we support them corporately. Like a part of our monthly budget goes to support organizations like Camp Hope Haven, CPC Pregnancy Center, Union Mission. All of these, um, all of these ministries help the vulnerable, the helpless, the alienated, and the outcasts. And that's amazing that our church gets to support them monthly. That's awesome. Internally, we have the Deacon Helping Hand Fund that supports people in our own congregation with needs, and that's awesome. But are we actually praying for these ministries? Like, do we, treat, I mean, do we think of them, like, do we think of them as our missionaries, as, as people who are doing the kingdom work among us? Like, are we praying for them? Do we value these ministries? Are we thankful for them? Are we wanting to volunteer at them, right? I mean, th- this passage should push us in this area. It's not enough to just corporately assent to these ministries being supported. We, we want to actually be supporting them as individuals of this body. So how do we individually care for orphans and widows? I think first off, it has to start with love. Do we actually love the oppressed? Do we actually have compassion on them? Or are we quick to judge and assume and dismiss and excuse ourselves from any responsibility with them? Brothers and sisters, love is where it has to start. A heart that does not love the oppressed does not rightly understand the gospel. This has really been weighing on me this week um, because I am someone who's very quick to judge and assume. I'm someone who's very prone to quickly dismissing my responsibility And this text has been weighing on me, and it's revealed to me that oftentimes I do not rightly understand who I am in Christ. Because without Christ, I am no better. I don't deserve God's love or kindness, and it's only when I catch a glimpse of the compassion and the love that's been shown to me in the gospel, I cannot help but have compassion and love for those who are oppressed and hurting. But so often, that gospel is forgotten, and I so quickly judge and assume. So brothers and sisters, do we, do we actually love the oppressed? Are we affected when we see the homeless or a single mother? Does that affect us at all? Are we affected when we see the fatherless? Do we even see them at all? Are we just so used to looking past them? Are we so blind in our thinking that we are clean from the world and pleasing to God? This this text must search our hearts. Because once we love the oppressed, we will express our love through good works. And if we do not love the oppressed, we are only showing that we do not understand the gospel. We're not doing the word yet. So how, how how would our love for orphans our love for widows be expressed through good works? Here are just a couple, a couple ideas. How about foster care and adoption? I mean, in Virginia alone, according to one study, there's more than 5,000 children in foster care right now in Virginia, of which 1,700 have the goal of adoption, and more than 600 are waiting for adoptive families right now. Is this a priority for us? Like, do we care at all about this? Are we bothered by these statistics? Like, Should it bother us that there are all of these children who are fatherless and motherless waiting for people to parent them? 
Does that bother us at all? I think it should. Like, our hearts should ache with love and compassion for these fatherless children. Yet, to my knowledge, I don't think any or maybe one or two families in our church are actually fostering at this time. And that should make us sad. Like, we should be praying that God would burden families in our assembly to foster and to adopt. We should be strategizing about how we can make that happen. We should be enabling other families in our assembly to foster and adopt. So what are we going to do about this? What would it be like for our ABS classes, for our assemblies to support couples to foster and adopt? Because that's who our Father is. That's just one really practical way. How How about those who are facing abortion, unborn babies? the vulnerable, the helpless, the oppressed. One commentator really stepped on my toes when he commented, uh, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, what good is it if we are anti-abortion but we never help the single mother in our neighborhood? We never volunteer at the local pro-life pregnancy center. We never give a penny to aid in the fight. And we never spend any time praying that our father would rescue these unborn babies and their mothers. What good is it if our anti-abortion convictions never leave our hearts or our pews? James is calling us to action here. He's calling us to be like our Father, who advocates for the oppressed and the helpless. This is very practical. These are key ways to know if our religion is pure and undefiled before our Father. How about single mothers? I mean, statistics say... Uh, one-third of children are raised in single-parent homes right now. So statistically, there's probably a single parent in your neighborhood somewhere. So are are they on our alert? Are they on our radars? There's single parents in our assembly. Are we looking out for them? Are we praying for them? Are we supporting them? We must strive to meet their needs. We must come around and support them. How about the widows in our assembly? Widows today still need a lot of care and support. They still do not have an easy life. So do you know any widows in our assembly? Do we pray for them regularly? Do you know their needs? Are you helping to meet them? Are you encouraging them? These are very practical ways. How about the fatherless in our assembly? I was uh, talking with Pastor Paul a few days ago about this text, and it was really encouraging to me because he was uh, just sharing with me how a text like this really weighs on him when it comes to youth ministry. And he specifically targets those in our youth group who are fatherless to shepherd them and care for them. That's encouraging. But is, it, is that all, even on our radar? Like, there, are, there are fatherless here in this room and in our assembly that need help, that need prayer, that need encouragement. Are we, are we even alert to that? This is all part of having pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. Now, What's the second mark? The second mark is to keep yourself unstained from the world. Look at the last half of verse 27. And to keep yourself, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, I have a couple questions for this too. Why should we keep ourselves unstained from the world, right? Like, what's so bad about it? Well, just flip over to James 4.4. Just one page over probably. James 4.4. He's going to address worldliness in chapter 4. And he says this. You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
So that's why we should care about worldliness, because God condemns it, and it, it's the exact opposite of who he is. I think also we should, we should really care about keeping ourselves unstained from the world, because we will be of little help to the hurting and the oppressed if we have the same heart problems that they do. We can be of little help in showing them God the Father if we don't actually know him or we're not actually worshiping him, right? So if the word has not taken root in our hearts, then there's no point in acting like it has. But if the word has taken root in our hearts, then we need to live like it, which means that we will embrace God and his values and his priorities and love him with all that we are and renounce the world. So the second question is, what is the world then? That's pretty important, right? If we're supposed to keep ourselves unstained from the world, it would be really important to know what the world is. Well, you could summarize it that the world is the human environment and the structure standing in opposition to God. That's one way of defining it. Another would be uh, to go to 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world— The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think this text is very helpful in helping us define what the world is. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We often think of worldliness as actions or specific things or objects. But here... Scripture defines worldliness as heart desires, sinful heart desires, contrary to God's will and plan. So the world is sin. More than just actions, which worldliness can include, worldliness is often described as these desires and heart values, and we need to be careful of those. So what does it mean to keep myself unstained from the world? That's an interesting choice of words, to keep myself unstained from the world. Well, I think uh, there's a positive and a negative way of saying this. It's like two sides of a coin, right? So you can say the positive side of it is you should pursue God. That's the safest way to be clean from the world. You pursue holiness. You pursue the character of God. You're in a relationship with God. That's a great safeguard from worldliness. And the other side is that we do need to reject worldly values and cultural pressures. It's two sides of the same coin. So the implication from this last part of this verse is that Christians must reject worldliness. If we are going to claim to be Christian, we must reject worldliness. So in order to kind of help us figure out, are we worldly, are we stained by worldliness, we could help ask some questions like, what do we value? What do we spend our time doing? What do we spend our money uh, on? We could ask are our careers stained by worldly ideas of success? Right? Are we consumed by gaining that next promotion or that next acknowledgement? Do we have to have public praise? Do our work schedules take priority over our families or our spiritual health or our church involvement? Right? Like Those are worldly attitudes and values that if we're not careful, they can stain our mind. Like We can just accept them and live like they are true. Are your retirement goals stained by the world? Like, are we happy if we can just retire and then live life for ourselves? I think James would have some warnings against that mentality. Are your expectations for your children stained by the world? What is your goal for your children? 
Like, do you want them to grow up and fulfill these two things really well? Because your goal for your children, if my children grow up to visit orphans and widows and to be unstained from the world, that is success. Or would you be content with, like, lots of money, a good degree, good job, big house, and nice, well-behaved grandchildren, right? It's so easy to just accept the culture's idea of what our expectations should be. Are they biblical or not? How about our view of church? Is that affected by cultural ideas? Are we we comfortable with the American mindset of just consuming church? Like, I just come and I attend and I sit down. Is that biblical at all, right? Like, where are we getting that from? Do we see any value in community and living life together as brothers and sisters in Christ? I think James would encourage us to filter our thinking about these ideas through Scripture or else we're prone to be stained by the world. Is our view of the poor and the oppressed influenced by our culture? Kind of hitting back on the first part. I mean, we pass a homeless person, do we automatically think they could have a job if they want to? Or they could probably use any money I give them for drugs? Or, wow, they smell and look terrible. I'm glad I'm not like them. If we're not careful, we can take the American mindset on the oppressed and just end up reflecting that. And that's not biblical. It's certainly not from James. So we must not accept the cultural viewpoints on issues. We have to be careful that we stay unstained from the world. Stay unstained from the world is much more than mere external obedience to certain actions. It's checking our values and our priorities. We must obey the word. And in this case, we must be loving and kind and generous, right? Now, to kind of close our time, I just wanted to ask this question, right? You might, you might have heard this and be like, this is really practical and kind of pushy on, like, helping those in need. Like, where, how do I know what you're saying is true? Like, is this, is this something maybe only unique to James? Like, this is maybe only, like, two verses in Scripture. Like, maybe it's a little out of balance. Well, I just wanted to prove to you, I don't think this is unique to James. So go to Jude with me, the, the letter of Jude, if you can find it. It's like one page. The book of Jude I want to ask the question, where did James get this message from? How do we know this is really what we should be doing? So look at Jude with me. I'm going to start in verse 20. I'm going to read down through verse 23. So Jude is contrasting the believers he's writing to with those who will cause trouble in the last days. And he says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Do you see some similarities in language from Jude to James? Show mercy. Show mercy. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Save others and hate the garment stained. There's our word, stained by the flesh. I think this is not unique to James. I think Jude is echoing this. I think there's one other person that we should look at. Go to Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke chapter 4. We're going to see that this message of aiding the orphans and the widows and keeping yourself unstained from the world is something that Jesus proclaimed. 
In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we get this scene from Luke. And he came to Nazareth, Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the message Jesus proclaimed. Liberty to those who are oppressed. The rest of Luke is filled with Jesus healing a paralytic, raising a widow's son, casting out demons, cleansing lepers, all of which were alienated, vulnerable, helpless, and outcasts. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Who is my neighbor? The person we come across who needs help. Luke 19.10 summarizes the mission of Jesus, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, if we are going to be doers of the word, these two requirements from James 26, 1, 26, and 27 should define our lives. If one of these is missing from our lives, according to James, our religion is not pure and undefiled before God the Father. So that, that should weigh on us. Caring for the oppressed and pursuing holiness should be very, very important to us. And they do not work in opposition to each other. According to James, this is Christianity. They work together. So, one last point of application is, are our schedules formed around these priorities, right? Like, if this is the essence of Christianity, like, if we're not doing these things, we're not Christian, what are we doing to make sure that we're actually doing this? (laughs) These should be really important. So what are, what are our schedules looking like? For, for me personally, I think I know that our schedules can be filled with lots and lots and lots of really good things, like good things. Right? Like I'm, I'm in seminary, I work at this church, like I, my life is filled with good things, doing really good things. But this, this text weighed on me that if this, these two things are not prioritized in my weeks, which turn into months, which turn into years, which turn into my life. If my weeks aren't prioritized by these essentials, then my life won't be. And if my life isn't characterized by these essentials, then something's really wrong. So we we need to wrestle with Scripture here. I've been wrestling with this Scripture. Like, what are are we going to do as a church to be a people who care for the orphans and the widows and you keep ourselves unstained from the world. My prayer is this week that that I would be a doer of the word, that we would be doers of the word, and not hearers only. We would commit to doing the very basic components of Christianity, according to James and Jude and Jesus. I leave you with a really positive thought from a commentator. He says, pure and undefiled religion is possible because God is our Father particularly a father for the fatherless, who brought forth his people by the word and continues to implant that word which produces good works.
So let's hear the word, and this week let's strive to be doers of that word. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider this text, it's a weighty text. We're overwhelmed by the simplicity of it, but the enormous outworking that it demands. And so we'd ask for grace and wisdom. Please take your word and plant it deep in us. Please shape and fashion us to mirror our Savior, Jesus. That the people around us would know our great God as the Father of the fatherless, the protector of the oppressed, the provider for the widows. So, Father, give us grace to do this well, that you would be glorified. I pray these things in your name. Amen.